0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. Hi everybody, from Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History, So as we continue our deep dive into the worldwide origins of agriculture in complex societies, the same questions keep coming up, whether we're talking about the Fertile Crescent or East Asia or next month, the Americas. How did people start cultivating plants and domesticating animals? How did those practices spread? Was it a package of practices moving or was it people? And how did the spread of agriculture shape human societies over the subsequent millennia? Today's guest has done more to address those questions on a global scale than practically any other scholar over the past several decades. He's the author of multiple books and a staggering number of articles and book chapters covering everything from specifics on the archaeology of Southeast Asia to the worldwide spread of language families. He's Professor Emeritus of Archaeology at the Australian National University, a member of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, and a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. He's just finished a new book on global human prehistory that he'll be publishing with Princeton University Press in the near future. Professor Peter Bellwood, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, hello. All around the world, from the Fertile Crescent to East Asia to the Americas, people began experimenting with plant processing and cultivation around the dawn of the Holocene. Why then? Why this relatively sudden explosion in subsistence strategies that differed so much from what people had been doing for most of human existence?
1: Yes, well, that's a very interesting question. I think we have to look at it from different levels. If you go back to the beginnings, of course, uh, modern humans, Homo sapiens, spread out of Africa through Asia and uh, Europe. 50 or 60,000 years ago. So clearly agriculture is, as far as we know, a product of modern humanity. Whether more archaic hominins like Neanderthals or Denisovans could ever have invented it, we will never know. It, It was, in a sense, the spread of modern humans that was the ultimate background to it. Then, of course, There were the climatic changes of the Pleistocene. Now, one of those led into what is called the Last Glacial Maximum between 25 and 18,000 years ago, a very cold, dry period of world climate. Humans, as far as we know, did not have agriculture then. Quite why, we don't know, but they didn't. There's no archaeological record to suggest that anyone did. Then the climate began to warm. And it got warmer and warmer. There was a a final cold spell about 12,000 years ago that climatologists and Earth scientists call the Younger Dryas. And that was a short, sharp cold spell from which the world emerged very quickly at about 12,000 years ago, a little bit less, into the warm climate that we enjoy today. Um, Geologists and Earth scientists call our period the Holocene, the last 12,000 years or so a very warm climate of course uh, we're making it warmer that's another issue from what we're talking about here but um, global warming is warming further on top of what is already a very warm climate and all of agriculture or food production as I tend to call it belongs in that phase of warm climate it belongs in the Holocene period there's no real sign that anyone was doing it in any systematic way before, let's say, eleven or 12,000 years ago. Of course, the oldest evidence we have is from the fertile Crescent. Now, why? Well, why? That's That's a long question. I suspect that what happened was after the last glacial maximum, human populations began to increase because the world became wetter and warmer. Some of them increased their numbers, still relying on wild plants and animals. Eventually, those numbers became quite large and if there were climatic phases of you know, returning to cold, dry conditions, people might have been prompted into cultivating those resources because agriculture is really all about cultivation. You have to look after things. You have to plant them, grow them, manage them and so forth. If you don't do that, there can be no agriculture. So something had to put humans into cultivating and cultivation has to be the background of domestication because agriculture is all about domesticated animals and plants. Unless you cultivate them or husband them in some way, you, you're not going to, to domesticate them. So there was a trigger. Um, first of all, in the Fertile Crescent, it was a little bit later in China, and then slightly later in other parts of the world. Exactly what those triggers were, I suspect they weren't always the same, but I think human numbers have a lot to do with it. It was something to do with human numbers in warming climates, and then possibly factors that stimulated those humans to develop cultivation and management activities. I'm not the first person to say this. It goes back in archaeology 50 years or more. People have been saying things like this. Uh, Some sort of trigger, probably combining both the warming, you know, the better climate conditions, but also triggers of conditions that were not so favourable that that prompted humans to, to do things that they'd never done before.
0: One of the fascinating things about the Holocene is that even as it's getting warmer and generally more pleasant, it can also be more variable. There's more variability within early Holocene climates that can trigger more varied subsistence strategies that can trigger more attempts to have a a wider array of food sources on which to draw as a hedge against uh, any one particular food source coming up short.
1: Yes. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that is true. But of course, um, I mean, Earth scientists also say that the last glacial maximum was very, very variable as well, and and Pleistocene. The Holocene has had ups and downs. Yeah, there've been periods of drought and so forth. But whether they were on the same scales as that, say, of the younger Dryas, which was almost back to last glacial maximum conditions, I am a little bit doubtful about that. The Holocene was in general a good period. Uh, There are times when it Appears to have been bad, like about eight thousand years ago, or you know, involving the, the the so-called fall of Maya civilization and the Indus Valley civilization, all that kind of thing. But of course, in those situations, one has to be also very careful to try to understand what the humans were doing. The humans were also affecting their landscapes, and um, so whether those you know, dramatic or seemingly dramatic drought periods were caused by human action or by purely natural. Earth cycle actions as it goes around the sun uh, is not, to me, is not 100% clear.
0: I interviewed uh, Professor Stephen Shannon a couple of weeks ago, and we talked a lot about local population extinctions and replacements, expansions, things of that nature. And he made the point that there are plenty of groups of people over the course of human history, uh, especially the further back that we go, the kind of less evidence that we have, who probably did just degrade their local environments to the extent that they could no longer live there, Um, and that that may have been especially true of, of early cultivators.
1: Yes, I think people do People do it now. And of course, they've done it. Yes, if, if there are in situations of stress and, you know, unequal access to resources, of uh, course people degrade environments. I think we know that from history. There's no doubt about that. I mean, humans are not automatically going to be, um, you know, perfect environmental managers. And I don't think we can expect them to, to, to ever have been like that.
0: So you mentioned triggers, triggers pushing people toward agriculture, maybe factors pulling people toward agriculture. Do you think, in your opinion, is food production a product of necessity? I mean, is it because the other resources grow scarce or abundance? Is it a gamble um, by affluent foragers, a kind of an experiment?
1: Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, obviously, the world was much more abundant after the last glacial maximum than it was during it. So abundance is a factor. But stress on resources is, I think, another another major factor as well. You notice, of course, in the case of the Fertile Crescent, when agriculture was starting or when animal domestication was starting, many of the wild animals, like gazelles, were disappearing. We know that from the, the boat, animal bone records in archeological sites. Um, they were becoming small in number and people clearly turned to sheep and goats as a, uh, and then began to, to breed them eventually. So I think, I think it is a factor of both. There is one important point about all of this, of course. When you look at the early Holocene world, if you didn't have an archaeological record, you might be inclined to assume that everybody everywhere just shifted into agriculture at the same time, because the whole world became warmer and presumably wetter. I mean, most parts of it. But that, of course, isn't how it happened. It happened in different places at different times. And there's one factor that's very important here. Um, Some parts of the world, and and Jared Diamond pointed this out many years ago, some parts of the world are lucky in that they have um, a number of animal species and annual cereal and legume species that are highly productive. Well, they're highly productive now. And somehow ancient peoples realised how important these things were and they began to domesticate them and um jared diamond called this what a preemptive domestication i think many of the early many of the first crops that have been domesticated wheat barley maize rice pigs dogs cattle sheep are still you know the mainstays of our diet today they've never been replaced no one's ever i well they've never been completely replaced put it that way and that's very important those areas of course like the fertile crescent china mesoamerica the andes we know are, were are also areas of very highly developed, complex ancient civilizations, the oldest ones in the world, in their various parts of the world. And I'm sure that's not coincidental. Some areas have more resources than others. And I think that is important. Australia, of course, has never had domesticated indigenous domesticated plants and animals. Um, some people say there's not an awful lot here that can be significantly domesticated. The the dingo, the dog was brought in from outside. That's not indigenous. So it may be may have a lot to do with the plants and animals that were available at the times in question. And by luck, people domesticated those. And then, of course, they took off, basically, I think, in terms of numbers and the areas that they were occupying. That was led to major expansions of human population.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated by the kind of contingent at the particular point in time nature of these shifts, because the ranges of those plant and animal species are not constant either. So what we have is a, are very specific points in time when, on a global scale, you have the right people in the right places with the right factors necessary to pull them into these large scale processes of domestication.
1: Well, I think there is one very important example here, and it's rice, of course. Now, wild rice grow all over the tropical world, and the, but the one that became domesticated, the in China, which it is is called a is a type of japonica was domesticated fairly early in the Holocene at a time when the climate was quite warm, probably a little bit warmer than now, and the wild rice spread up to the Yangtze River. It doesn't grow that far north now, but it did then. It spread as far north as the Yangtze River, uh, even beyond into what is almost to the Yellow River, and people domesticated it up there. Apparently, of course, on the edge of its range at the time when any climatic changes uh, and, and especially on the edge of the range, any climatic changes, they're going to be much more significant than they would be in the center of the range, I suppose. I mean, that is another point of view that has been around for a very long time. So, the yeah, I mean, I think that is a good example of that. rice, especially.
0: So we've talked a little bit about rice. We've talked about the Fertile Crescent. We've mentioned the Americas. In a global and comparative context, and I, I mean, I think you're probably better qualified to answer this question than than anybody else. Do you see particular factors that they share in common? Um, in what ways do they differ?
1: For me, all ancient systems of food production have two features that are that are crucial. One of them is that, of course, they produce domesticated plants and animals. That means that you can breed them. You can increase the quantities of food that you're producing in the case of cereals. You you can plant them in different environments at different times of the year, which is very difficult to do if you're just trying to carry wild wheat and barley around. And that leads to the other thing, which is the factor of transportability. I mean, hunters and gatherers don't go off collect all their wild plants and then migrate somewhere. It doesn't work that way. Farmers, of course, can do that. And the classic case here is that of the Polynesians, who were uh, intensive and highly skilled farmers. People think of the Polynesians as spending their whole life sitting in boats, sailing around. But, of course, they didn't do that. they, They grew crops, lots of them. They had... Yam and taro and fruit and tree fruits like breadfruit and so forth, pigs and dogs and chickens. And it enabled them to spread through all of those islands, all the way from Southeast Asia to Easter Island uh, and also, of course, Madagascar. But many of the Pacific islands were much too small to have supported hunter gatherer populations purely in any numbers. Uh, there, There just wasn't enough food, even with fishing, there was not enough food available. And many of the tiny Polynesian islands had people on them who then disappeared before the end of prehistory. So it was was the food production system and its transportability. And again, my colleague Patrick Kirch has emphasised this with Polynesian food production. Uh, What is it? I think the term portmanteau biota that may well have come from the historian Alfred Crosby um, from his book Ecological Imperialism. Uh, The portmanteau biota could be carried around the world and transplanted in a way that... It was very difficult for hunters and gatherers to do. So I think those two factors, domestication, for me, food production, domestication is the most important thing. Of course, we know that many cultivators cultivate wild things, wild plants, isn't it? Obviously, the earliest farmers in the world were cultivating uh, animals and plants that were genetically wild. I mean, that's just that just stands to reason, and eventually they became domesticated.
0: Well, so that makes a lot of sense. There's so we have domestication and transportability, but before that, we have the cultivation of of wild plants, and th- these do not necessarily bear a ton of resemblance to their domesticated counterparts. Often they do, but in the case that I'm doing my research on uh, on the Americas right now, Teosinte does not look a lot like domesticated mice.
1: No, no, it doesn't. No. Well, teosinte, I presume, was domesticated twice. I, I'm not a I'm not, now. I'm not an authority on maize, of course, but I mean, my understanding is that it might have been domesticated first as a plant that produced a juice from the store for producing a, a fermented product, a, a kind of beer, a chicha or something. But that comes from the cob, I know. But um, as later on, of course, it was the cob that was emphasised. By the time you get to the Formative and classic civilizations in Mesoamerica. It's the cob that is the most important aspect of food supply. Um, yeah, but certainly Teosinte, as I understand it, is, is totally different. That is the most extreme case of a change from a wild to a domesticated plant, I think, in the whole of, of human existence.
0: Yeah, there's been some really fascinating recent work on, on Teosinte that suggests that the specific climatic conditions of the early Holocene when, when people first started to domesticate it, actually, it led to it expressing its morphological characteristics differently. Um, so basically, because there was maybe a little bit more carbon dioxide in the air, it was maybe a little bit warmer, a little bit wetter in these places, that it actually looked more like domesticated mace than current wild teosinte does.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, but that's interesting. I can't comment on that because I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not a genetic, plant geneticist, but but that, that does sound interesting. And Maybe that's why they, they picked it. Yes, it does seem remarkable. Why did they? I mean, when you look at wild wheat, you can see the resemblance with domesticated wheat. But when you look at teosinte, you don't really see a resemblance to corn cobs that people grow today. You know, it is that that raises the question. Did people do it? What you know, did they do it deliberately? I know a lot of archaeologists, of course, think they did. I don't know. It's, we know that it took quite a long time for plants to become fully domesticated, one or two thousand years. It didn't happen overnight because it needs an awful lot of selection to produce domesticated genotypes. But were humans aware of what they were doing? I think they were. I think our ancestors were quite clever. I don't don't think they were just doing it blindly. No, I think they knew what they were doing. Once they realised that by interfering in the reproductive cycle of a plant, they could induce certain changes, I suspect they kept on trying to do it. I mean, maybe not always successfully, but I, I suspect they might have known about it.
0: Yeah, that would it would make a lot of sense if they had. I mean, one of the things that comes through very clearly in the ethnographic record is just how much hunter gatherers know about their environment, and just how much they know about the various properties of plants, the things you can use them for. And so, I mean, I think it would be it would be underestimating our ancestors to think that they weren't capable of drawing those kinds of causal inferences.
1: That's right, and I think there's a point here. Uh, domestication is something that developed in the Holocene, but cultivation or management of resources is something that I think has always been around. Uh, I mean Aboriginal Australians before the arrival of Europeans of course were cultivating. There's been a lot of debate of that, debate about that recently in the Australian literature. They were burning the land, they were harvesting cereals, they were in some cases replanting parts of tubers and so forth. They were cultivating. They didn't domesticate things. So it is difficult to call them food producers, but they were certainly cultivators, I think. And I don't think cultivation was ever invented. I think it's always been practiced by, well, at least by modern humans. Uh, We can't say for uh, earlier, earlier types of humanity, of course.
2: If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying?
0: A great deal of your work has argued for and focused on these really intimate connections between the emergence of food production, population growth, and then followed by migration. So how would you sum up that connection?
1: Yeah, well, that is my, I suppose that is my main viewpoint on, on life. Now, I know a lot of archaeologists don't always agree about this, but I, to me, I see food production as a means of increasing the size of the human population, of course. And eventually, it stands to reason that if you have any increasing family sizes, three as opposed to two children per couple, uh, once you start to inherit land, you're going to get less and less of it. And of course, people, you've only got to look at the colonial era to see the the pressures for migration from Europe to North America and Australia and so forth in the 19th century to realise how important demography was. Huge population numbers, especially after the Industrial Revolution. And I think the same occurred in prehistoric times. Early farmers would have had, I think, large family sizes. They grew quickly. Uh, There wasn't anything really to stop them from expanding. I mean, apart from environmental factors, it it seems from the record we have of, say, you know, genetics in Europe, that hunter-gatherers did not hold up the spread of agriculture very much. They did on the margins, of course, but that's different in the main areas of good agricultural land. Hunters and gatherers didn't really slow it down. I I think the whole thing was simply a a spread of an increasing human population who were moving into new territory where they could, of course, their food production could expand and grow, uh, even if they were uh, in in failing conditions behind them, the ones ahead um, would have been increasingly productive for them. So I see these spreads as spreads of people. Yes, I don't think farming just spread by itself. I am doubtful. I mean, I have looked at the ethnographic record on this. Um, You you look at the hunter-gatherers who survived into the period of European contact in in Western North America, Australia, Um, the ones who were not living close to farmers. There's no real sign that they were eager to adopt agriculture. Uh, Some of them tried, but Europeans often took the land away too quickly for them, and they couldn't really make it work very, very well. And... So I think, I think the spread of farming has essentially been you know, the spread of farmers. And of course, with those farmers went archaeological cultures and languages. And languages are very important here. Difficult, but because they're prehistoric and, of course, without writing, you cannot know all that much about them. But in terms of reconstruction, I can see a lot of links between early farming spreads and the, the origins of major, some of the major language families of the world today that we still speak now.
0: One of the really fascinating things to me, because I have I studied migration for a long time in the context of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. That was one of my original areas of focus when I was doing my doctorate. Um, so I've been fascinated by questions of population movement for a really long time. And it strikes me that one of the things that we see a lot of in prehistory when we're dealing with these long time frames is population expansions followed by contractions, expansions followed by contractions, and that for a lot of these population expansions in like the mid-Holocene with early agricultural populations, that there had been a contraction of hunter-gatherer populations prior to that. The the summed radiocarbon probabilities from Mesolithic Europe suggest that there were fewer hunter-gatherers when the farmers started showing up than there had been, and that to some extent that may have been true in Southeast Asia as well. And then it's definitely true in, in North America when in, in historical times as European settlers show up.
1: Well, yes, Uh, you're suggesting here that the the indigenous population was already shrinking before Europeans arrived. Before they arrived in large numbers, yes. In large numbers, because, of course, in the case of European arrival, I mean, the factor of disease, which has to post date 1492, presumably, but diseases must have had a very, very quick effect, an enormous and disastrous effect before, in many cases, actual Europeans set foot in many parts of the Americas, and I presume in Australia as well, Mm -hmm. yes. That would have helped the settlement, of course it would, yes. And it it, it seems to me that uh, one question I often ask about the Americas is, we know that the English language, of course, has become very important in North America because of the very large numbers of European settlers coming from Britain and other places. In the case of uh, Latin America, there weren't that many Spaniards, but of course they arrived much earlier and the diseases they brought probably uh, reduced the indigenous population so much that eventually... Um, the Spanish language, of course, was able to become as important as it is today, which is dramatically important. There were very large areas, although, of course, there are large numbers of areas where indigenous languages survive. They tend to be either remote areas or places where there were large populations, as in the Maya region, for instance, or in the Andes. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that is a possibility. But to me, uh, the driving factor is still... The growth in the agricultural populations. I mean, diseases or no diseases, you you still need, I think, a large number of people coming in to bring in agriculture and languages. They're not going to spread in by themselves. And I've always felt that way. The, The modern genetic evidence from ancient DNA that we have from Europe and Southeast Asia is, I think, supporting that viewpoint. Yes, a large number of people moved. And to a large extent, they did replace the indigenous population. Many people may not like to admit it, but I, that does seem to be the way it happened. And um, we have to you know, think about that in our explanations, I think.
0: I think it raises some emotions with people when you get right down to it, the idea that maybe your descendants aren't going to be living here, that maybe this the group of people to, to which you belong might not exist in 500 years or a thousand years or a couple thousand years. I think that's hard for people to wrap their heads around and hard to accept, yet it seems to be the case.
1: Yes, that, that does cause a lot of sort of heartache or something. I'm not quite sure what the correct word is here. But yes, amongst indigenous people in Australia, the Pacific, and I'm sure the Americas as well. Yes, of course, indigenous people do worry about those things. If archaeologists come along and say, well, your ancestors have only been here for X amount of time, and there were other people beforehand. That is difficult. I I don't know the obvious answer. I mean, to me, as a prehistorian, I'm reluctant to sort of push it under the carpet and ignore it. I mean, to me, it's important information about human existence about why we're here. Uh, But we have to try and explain it in a way that's not going to upset people or or offend them. And I I see that as important. Yes, of course, it's very important.
0: I want to come back to languages a little bit. You talked about this a moment ago. So you've argued... That the major language families that today define huge regions of East Asia and Southeast Asia basically emerged with agriculture in East Asia. So Austronesian at the mouth of the Yangtze, uh, Hmong-Mien and Kradai further up the Yangtze, then Sino-Tibetan on the Yellow River. So what kind of evidence can we point
1: to for this? Well, of course, the evidence is partly linguistic, but there is a problem here. I mean, you mentioned Austronesian languages of Island Southeast Asia and the Pacific as coming from the mouth of the Yangtze. We don't really know that. In fact, the Austronesian languages, as far as we know, in terms of reconstruction, come from Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. But of course, we know that Austronesian-speaking people cannot simply have come out of holes in the ground in Taiwan. They must have been in southern China before that. Yep. So we don't know what languages were there because the Chinese languages and the Thai languages or Kradai have spread and replaced all the older ones. And there's no trace of what was there beforehand. We can't do anything about that. It's just the way it is. There were no written records of that period. Um, The evidence has gone. We don't really know exactly where Austronesian comes from in the general area of southern China. But in my view, it has to come from somewhere in that and of course you go further back and further back and further back until you get back to Africa but we have to draw the line somewhere and linguists tend to draw the line with Taiwan in terms of the Austronesian languages that exist today their homeland is Taiwan about 5,000 years ago what happened before that is quite frankly rather obscure although we can point to southern China and it's the same with the others so uh, yeah I mean to me it is uh, related to the growth of agricultural populations who spread to Taiwan, first of all. They then went to the Philippines, where they developed uh, more advanced methods of sailing around in boats, things like sails and outriggers. And then they began to sail off towards Indonesia, Sulawesi and Borneo, east into the western Micronesian islands and the islands around New Guinea. And eventually, of course, they became the Polynesians and also the Malagasy going in the other direction because they're Descendants that ultimately went more than halfway around the world. That's quite an incredible migration. But sorry to get back to your point. Yeah, I mean, it seems to originate in southern China, but it's very, very difficult to pin it down to a place. And I think it always
0: will be. One of the methods that linguists use when, when when they're looking for the original homeland is you try to reconstruct the proto-vocabulary and try to figure out where are the places where either archaeologically or in terms of just the natural world around you, you can find these things. And so for all of these language families, that seems to point toward a world where farming was a thing that existed. Is that more or less correct?
1: I wouldn't say for all of them. Uh, not not language families of hunter gatherers, of course, not in Australia. No, 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 no. no. For,
0: the, for the language families that I just mentioned. So Kradai, Hamongmian, and yeah.
1: Talking about farming peoples in southern China, yes, yes, I mean, Kra Dai or Thai, if you like, uh, Austronesian, Austro Asiatic, which includes people like Khmer's and Vietnamese. Yes, they all seem to have had a farming ancestry at the time of their earliest traceable spread. I mean, before that, of course, they were all hunter gatherers, but their earliest traceable spread appears to have happened at around the time when they were developing or acquiring in some way methods of food production. Yeah, I definitely take that view, yes, very strongly.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: So as we use the methods of comparative reconstruction and and get back to proto-languages, can those reconstructions shed any light on their world? Even as we get back before the invention of writing, can we, by looking at these vocabularies, can we understand something about how they lived and what their lives were like?
1: Yes, quite a lot. And uh, now a lot of research has been done on this in the case of the Austronesian language family, because its structure is very well understood. It covers a very large area. Uh, there has not been a great deal of linguistic replacement within that area. So the Austronesian languages that exist today can be traced quite easily back to what we might call Proto-Austronesian. That is not the case with all language families because there's often been so much replacement that they're extremely difficult to sort out in terms of origin. But in the case of Austronesian languages, my linguistic colleagues, Robert Blust and uh, Patrick Kirch, archaeologists, The late Roger Green have all written a lot of very important and interesting surveys uh, of Polynesian and Austronesian languages reconstructing from linguistics what kind of houses they built, what kind of social structure they had, even perhaps, you know, what they called their mother-in-law or something like that. These sort of ideas can all be reconstructed, but also the food production, the crops, in the case of Southeast Asia, the rice, the millet, in the case of the Pacific, it's mostly yam and taro, pigs, of course, dogs, chickens, things that are fairly universal we know they when well, the case of the chicken i should say they could be a little more recent than pigs and dogs but that is a, an aside to the general story um, we know that they, they must all have been present at the time of the dispersal in the case of austronesians that would, would put them back in taiwan and there's a lot of archaeology which points to the same thing you know archae sites waterlogged sites with remains of rice and millet and pigs and dogs and and so forth so the whole thing does look like it fits together through the last 5,000 years.
0: So this is a case where those various lines of evidence seem to converge on not an easy to reconstruct story, a very difficult to reconstruct story, but all of the various lines of evidence are in alignment. When we look at other parts of the world. Do you think that the story lines up quite so neatly? In what cases do various kinds of evidence tell different kinds of stories? Yeah, for me, I think
1: the agricultural origins do explain a great deal in the Americas and the old world. I mean, in the case of the Americas, certainly the Amazonian language families, the The people that we call the Utah Aztecans, I I see uh, very strongly as having spread with agriculture. Um, In the case of Utah Aztecans, with maize agriculture from Mesoamerica into the U.S. southwest. Now, I know a lot of archaeologists don't agree with that, but to me, it it makes the most sense. In the case of the old world, yes, if we talk about languages like English and its relatives, its many relatives, the Indo-European family, of course, there is a lot of debate about whether that family spread from the Middle East, during Neolithic times through Europe and across to northern India and so forth, or whether it spread from what are now the the steppes of Ukraine and Western Russia uh, during the Bronze Age. Now, I'm perfectly happy to agree that during the Bronze Age, there were movements of people into northern Europe, very major ones, all the way through to the British Isles, and probably led to a lot of population replacement and maybe quite a lot of language spread. I don't see them as being the first Indo-Europeans. I think in the case of the Indo-European, you have layer upon layer. Uh, First of all, a major group expands, and I think that was a Neolithic population, and then other groups expand over the top of it, often replacing what might have been there beforehand. And of course, by doing that, they make it extremely difficult to see the origin in terms of the linguistic evidence. The linguistic evidence for Indo-European does not, to me, point to the steps of, of Western Russia. In any clear way. I know a lot of linguists and archaeologists say it does, but I think that they're not using, if you like, the family tree of the Indo-European language family, which to me suggests very clearly that the homeland was further south in what is now somewhere like Anatolia or an adjacent region in, in the northern Middle East, the northern part of the fertile crescent. So there are these debates and they reflect the different kinds of evidence. Yes, different kinds of evidence give different answers. And often it's very difficult to know what has been lost, what you don't know. You can never know what you don't know. And you can certainly never interpret the past in terms of what you think you don't know. That is a very dangerous thing to do. You simply have to look at the most likely possibilities using the ancient DNA, the archaeology, the linguistics, and see what seems to fit. In in, in the case of my own view about this, I can see that early farming spreads do fit many situations from my perspective. And that is why I have always um, favoured that viewpoint, I suppose, for the last 30 or 40 years. I am still doing so at the moment. Yes, I I, I see no particular strong reason to change it. But I'm happy to listen to special cases, of course, where things didn't happen quite like that. Indo-European might be one, but I'm not convinced at the moment. Yeah, Indo-European would be
0: an interesting one because you still might be talking about a relative revolution in food production, in the sense that if you're if you're talking about the origins of nomadic pastoralism as a viable large scale way of life, you still might be talking about a, a dramatic shift in the possibilities that go along with food production that might lead to population expansion, even if that's not necessarily primary food production, even if that's not growing crops.
1: Yeah, yes, of course. Well pastoralism from the in the case of the Western Russian steppes, yes, of course, or the so-called Pontic steppes after the Black Sea the Black Sea steps, if you like. Yes, of course, uh, pastoralism must have been a major factor. I mean, whether pastoralists replaced all the Neolithic populations of Europe in terms of language, I don't know. They certainly did to an extent in terms of genes. Yeah, Yes, um, that is an interesting question. If you have a migration, will they always bring their language? This is a very difficult question. Yes, what happens with migrations in history, in recorded history, of which there's a great deal, if, and a lot of people, of course, linguists and historians have written about this, In the cases of most migrations, like the people after the Roman Empire coming from Germany and uh, and the steppes and so forth, the Goths and the Huns, they they didn't replace a lot of language in Europe. The Anglo-Saxons certainly did in England, but uh, otherwise there was not a lot of linguistic replacement. They, They simply adopted the languages of the people who were living there already. But when you have very large numbers of incoming people, as in North America or Australia in the colonial era, of course, the language that's brought in replaces the indigenous ones. But there are many, many cases in between. If you have a small population of, let's say, important people, or an elite, as anthropologists tend to call them, if they come in, will they replace the language of a very large dense population of indigenous people who are farmers. Now I don't think that ever happens very much in world history. Uh, There's been a lot of debate about this and it does bring up the issue for Indo-European. A lot of people believe that Indo-European languages might have spread this way into India and around the Mediterranean. Not northern Europe because there there was a definite migration but elsewhere it's not. uh, Migration is nowhere near as clear as it is in northern Europe.
0: It's a fascinating question because the most salient example that people think of in a European context is the Anglo-Saxons coming to England. And, you know, that's a thing that historians and archaeologists and linguists have argued about for a very long time is, is this a folk migration or is this an elite replacement model? And if it's an elite replacement model, how are they getting people to speak the English language? I mean— As somebody who worked on it for a long time, I think it's probably a folk migration. But if that's going to be the parallel that people want to use, it's hard to say, especially when the the parallel case that you're using is not at all clear.
1: (laughs) I think in the case of Anglo-Saxon, I mean, I grew up in central England, and I'm probably an Anglo-Saxon. I don't know. I'm either that or or a Viking. I've never had my DNA tested. But to me, the Anglo-Saxons brought in the language. And they just simply founded so many villages with Anglo-Saxon names that they can't have been an elite. I, I don't. I know a lot of people take that view. It's because there's a lot of politics and debate about it in the UK. To me, they were what the historians said they were. They were migrants who came in and took the land from the Britons and settled down and farmed it and fought the Britons over it for a very long time until eventually the Anglo-Saxons, of course, became more and more dominant and developed the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the later part of the first millennium, uh, I don't think they were just simply any. No, I don't. I, I think there was a major movement of people, but that's probably a side issue. But that is the point I'm trying to get at, I suppose. Yes, to me, language families, anything on, on the scale of a language family, has to have a very large number of moving people behind it if it's going to spread in any sort of major way and other kinds of adoption of language through elite dominance if you like or trade or even religion I, I don't see the religion to me has never spread languages we're probably getting off the main topic of your talk here <laughs> these are very interesting questions <laughs> I don't
0: think they're at all off the topic mostly because one of the things that's really that was really refreshing to me in reading your work and in reading a lot of the more recent work on prehistory and especially the stuff on genetics is how ubiquitous migration is and because again from the from the period that I was working on there were huge questions about do people actually move in large numbers. And I always thought they did. But that was a very out of fashion thing in studies of historical periods for most of the last 40 years. And so it's it's nice to feel like I'm not crazy (laughs) that like, yes, people do, in fact, move. They move all the time. They move in large numbers. We should view that as a
1: baseline fact of the human condition over long periods. So I, I think fashion's a dangerous thing. I grew up with fashion as well. Is everyone saying, oh no, 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 there's no such thing as migration. it's impossible. Of course it's not. You've only got to look at the last few hundred years. I mean of course it's, uh, migration is it will never stop. There're always going to be imbalances of resources and imbalanced access to resources. And the people who are on the suffering side are going to want to move to the places where things are better. You can't blame them, and they're never going to stop wanting to do it, as far as I can see.
0: I think that more or less sums it up. Would you like to say anything about your new book? Well, I'm, I'm about to submit that. I,
1: I'm just uh, do, I'm editing the uh, my own uh, chapters at the moment, and my wife is helping me to correct my English and things like that. It's about global prehistory from early hominins through to recent times. It also discusses uh, topics to do with earlier hominins, of course, not not homo sapiens, but earlier kinds of hominins. And um, it will be submitted to Princeton University Press, it'll probably be called The Five Million Year Odyssey, and hopefully it will come out next year. that's probably all I can tell you at the moment.
0: Well, that's a lot. It sounds like a whole life's work, and
1: I very much look forward to reading it.
0: On that note, thank you so much for your time, Professor. I really appreciate it, and thank you again for all of your work on these topics over the years.
1: Uh, thank you very much. It's been an interesting talk.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and drop me a line if you'd like to chat about the fall of the Roman Empire or the rise of the modern world. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show at Tides History. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History.
2: The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience.
0: Quickly, I see that. Bing!